tonight we're going to start our study in Psalm 15. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn with me there to Psalm 15. There's not really a title per se to this psalm. It just simply says a psalm of David. So we see the author indicated in the title. This was written by David. However, there's a theme that's very clear in this psalm that I think we could say several different ways. It's really describing holy living. Um, you could say that this is a description of the godly, the theme of Psalm 15. Others have called this the character and qualifications of a true worshiper of God. So it's really a great, great psalm. Now this is going to be in contrast to the one we just finished, Psalm 14, where we've seen the fool described in that psalm. We've seen the overall wickedness of man in Psalm 14. Uh, psalm 15 is different. We're going to see the character of a true worshiper of God. Matthew Henry said this about Psalm 15. He said, Psalm 15 is the way to heaven. He said, if we could be happy, then we must also be holy. So we're encouraged to walk in that way. And I think that is a fantastic way to put this is if we're going to be happy, if we're going to be blessed, in other words, then we must be holy. And um, so we got to walk in that way. And Psalm 15 is a great description of how to do that. David begins this psalm in verse 1 with two different questions that we see right off the bat. And both of these questions that we see are pertaining to man's relationship with God. He says, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle or who may dwell in your holy hill? And so what David is essentially asking here is, God, who can be in your presence? What a question to ask. Lord, who can be in your presence? And then we're going to see in verses 2 through 5, he's going to actually provide the answers to those questions. So a great psalm. Let's go ahead and read it out loud. I'll be reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. Psalm 15, verse 1. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness, and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. But he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. And he does these things, excuse me, he who does these things shall never be moved. And so just kind of some initial observations here from this psalm, maybe a, an overview, if you will. Um, just like Psalm 14 was very similar to Psalm 53, I think we see here in Psalm 15 that it's also similar to Psalm 24. So if you want to go and look at Psalm 24, you're going to see some similarities, at least in the fact that they both ask very, very similar questions. For example, in Psalm 24, verse 3, David asks, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Or, Who may stand in his holy place? And then here in Psalm 15, verse 1, he asks it in a little different way, but it's very similar. He says, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle and who may dwell in your holy hill? And so I think if we were to break these two questions down and just really get straight to the point, I think that we might could say that David is asking the all-important question, who can approach God? Who is it that can approach God? I mean, who can actually come before Him? And so, 
Today, obviously, we have an advantage of having New Testament revelation. And so we may ask this question a little bit differently. We've seen this asked in the New Testament in Acts 16.30. You remember the Philippian jailer. He just came right out and said, what must I do to be saved? Right? So that's kind of how we would say that from a New Testament perspective. Who can approach God? What must I do to be saved? So David is asking the question, God, what's it going to take? What are the conditions for me to gain favor with you and to enter into your presence? And these are very important questions. And so, again, if we were to answer this with the advantage of having New Testament revelation, I think we would answer the same way that Paul and Silas did the Philippian jailer, right? Acts 16.31, the jailer says in, in verse 30, What must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas answer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole household. So that's how we would answer that today. The gospel is good news for us and our entire house, our entire household. So believe on Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But these questions that David is asking here in verse 1, really, to me, it's questions that humanity has pondered really all throughout history, all throughout time. These are really the questions of the ages, you could say. Who is God? And how can I know him? I mean, it doesn't get a lot more important than that. Who is God and how can I know him? And if I can, in fact, know this God that's there, what does that look like? How can I gain access to him? And so very, very important questions that we see here in verse 1. And I think in this psalm, again, with the benefit of New Testament revelation, we're going to see just how that can happen. We're going to see in this psalm both the law and the gospel. We're going to see the righteous and just demands of God for sinners to be able to stand in the presence of God. We're going to see our inability to meet those demands. Okay, And so as believers on this side of the cross, if you will, we know that all of the demands of God were met in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a very important perspective to have. And all that the law, the law itself is proof, all of the law is proof that we need a savior and in fact the law paul said in romans 6 verses 9 through 12 it actually drives us to christ and so the law is good for that it drives us to christ it exposes our need for him and so i hope what we learn from this psalm is a few things i hope we learn yes we're to be holy just like the bible says we are to be i hope we learn that yes we're to walk uprightly there's no doubt about that. Just like the Bible says, yes, we are to work righteously, absolutely. And all of the rest of these conditions that we see here, all of those are absolutely true, which, by the way, these are ethical conditions. They're not legalistic. They're not ritualistic. It's all ethical from an ethical, excuse me, an ethical perspective. But what I hope that we ultimately come to understand here is that our desire for holiness and our desire to see all of these requirements fulfilled in our life should flow out of the reality that we are accepted in Christ. We are accepted in Christ. Okay, Christ is our holiness. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is the one who empowers us to walk upright before God. So we see the commands from Scripture, but we see the fulfillment of those commands in our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so with that said, to answer David, what can I do to, to gain access to God? What can I do? The short answer is nothing. 
Okay, nothing. I can't do anything. But thanks be to God, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's in Christ. The real answer to this question for all of us who are imprisoned in our sin, for all of us who are absolutely incapable of escaping this world on our own, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Acts 16, 31. So one of the things I want us to do here as we work our way through this psalm, and we're probably going to get through the first three verses tonight or so, but just keep in mind, as we look at these Old Testament questions, look at them in light of New Testament revelation. Think about Jesus Christ. I've said this many, many times. When you're reading through the Psalms, when you're studying through the book of Psalms, be on the lookout for Jesus because he's everywhere. Okay, and we're definitely going to see that in this psalm. Verse 1. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And so, again, two very pointed questions, very important questions. I think very common questions to humanity. At some point, probably each and every one of us have wondered, is there a God? And if so, who is it? And how can I know him? These are basic questions that we all come across at some point in our life. Who in the world can draw near to God and live in his presence? That's a great question. On the one hand, okay, I think we can sense the awe and the wonder and the majesty of God here in these questions, can't you? I mean, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who is that? You sense awe and majesty. God, you're so far above me, how can I possibly get to where you are? So there's reference here, I think, intimated in these questions. But on the other hand, I think that you can also see a legitimate desire to know him. Like this is an earnest plea, an earnest cry, an earnest question. God, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? As if to say, I want to do that. I want to be there with you. I want to know you more. And so I think really out of these two questions here in verse 1, I want to pull out five words that are very important to these questions. And I want to focus on those five words in this first verse. And those words are abide tabernacle, dwell, and the words holy hill. And so I want to focus on that for just a minute because they're very important to these two questions. The word abide, in Hebrew, it literally means to sojourn. It means to stay, but for a time. Okay, so the idea here is, is this is more like a visit. All right, the word abide is more like a visit. It's sojourning, to stay for a particular period of time. So David is saying, Lord, who may visit with you in your tabernacle? Okay. That, that brings us to the word tabernacle. That word literally means tent, right? Tabernacle means tent. Now we know that this was God's dwelling place before the temple, right? Before the temple was built, God dwelt in the tabernacle. So again, temporary. This is a temporary idea. David is saying, Lord, who may visit with you temporarily while you are in your temporary dwelling place, right? Now stay with me. I don't want to lose you here because I think this is important. David uses a little bit of play on words in my opinion. The word dwell, it's the Hebrew word shakan. And it means to, check this out, settle down or reside. So you see the difference already, right? The idea is permanent, not temporary. Lord, who can settle down or live or reside with you permanently? 
And then you come to the words holy hill, okay? Kadesh Har in Hebrew. Now, this is a metaphor of heaven, right? Psalm 24, 3 tells us that. That's why I say compare these two psalms. So this is a metaphor for heaven. Again, this is the place where God dwells not temporarily, but he dwells permanently, right? And so this is pretty cool to me. I mean, this brief little word study that we just done, it becomes very, very enlightening, doesn't it? David is asking God, who can be in your presence, Lord, both now and forever? Lord, who can know you now and forevermore? Who can walk with you now, Lord, and then again for all of eternity? So this is really pretty neat. Who can enjoy your presence, God, on earth and in heaven? It's awesome. What a question and what a passion we see here from David to know God. Those who really want to know God want to spend eternity with him, right? David wants to dwell with God. How many times do you see people today, they approach God from the standpoint of, okay, God, I'll buy into this Christianity thing if it gets me out of hell. If it expiates my sin or if it gives me a pass and I can scoot into the door of heaven. That's not what we see here. David is saying, God, I want to be in your presence. I want to know you more today and I want to know you for all of eternity. And so that's a whole lot different kind of passion, isn't it? Then, yeah, I'll take a chance on God if he can get me out of hell. That's not somebody who really wants to know God, is it? No, David has a great passion here to be in the presence of God. And I think as believers in Christ, we need to have that yearning in our soul. We need to have that kind of passion in our soul to want to be with God. And part of this comes from that yearning to see his, his return. Lord, I can't wait till you come back because that means I can be with you. And so I think at times in, in our walk, we get a little timid. We get a little scared. We get a little... I don't know, off on our own, if I can say that, and say, God, I'm good with you as long as I'm over here and you're at a safe distance and you're not messing with my life too much. And that's not what we see here in this psalm. David is saying, I want to get close now. I want to be in your presence now. I want to abide with you temporarily on this earth. And I want to be with you forever in eternity. I don't want to be far away from you. I don't want God here and me over there i want to be in your presence and that is a beautiful beautiful thing to be and it's something i think as believers we want to effort toward that i mean in your prayer time do you want to be with god or do you want to get done with your prayer do you want to be in his presence do you want to sit there do you want to listen and have god abide with you and you with him walk with him and he with you and, and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ today and then for all of eternity. I think as believers, that's really, again, something that we should strive for in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ is that yearning and that passion and that desire to be in the presence of God. And, and David really pulls that out in the first verse of this psalm. Jesus said this in John chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Okay, and he goes on to say, and he will go in and out and find pasture. Fellowship, right? 
Verse 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. But then he goes on to say, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Man, this lines up perfectly with what David's talking about here. Abide with Christ today, in and out, find pasture with the Lord Jesus Christ and dwell with him forever. I've come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. And so the other thing that I gleaned from this verse here in John from, from what Jesus said is the presence of God. If that's what we yearn for as believers in Jesus Christ, and yes, it should be. Okay, where do we find that? Who may abide in this tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? How can we be in the presence of God? It can only be found behind the door of the person of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's how you get in the presence of God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who wish to gain access to the presence of God must enter through the person of Jesus Christ. You all know the scripture, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So check this out. Christ is both our compass and our destination. Okay, he is both our compass and our, our destination. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's not a way that shows us to another way. No, he is the way, the truth, and the life, both our compass and our destination. So again, New Testament revelation here helps us to see more clearly. But David's questions are very, very valid. And I think that they help point the Old Testament reader to Christ or to the Messiah, even in his day. And we're going to see that as we move through this psalm, uh, with the understanding that none of these conditions for fellowship can be met through our own power. None of these conditions for fellowship or being in the presence of God can be accomplished through our own goodness. Of course not. It's only through the Lord Jesus Christ that we have access to God. And so Old Testament believers, think about it like this. Old Testament believers were saved by faith because of the promised work of Jesus Christ. Okay. New Testament believers are saved by faith because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's the difference here. And so in verses 2 through 5, David is going to begin to provide answers to the questions that he just asked. Verse 2, he says, okay, who can do these things? Who can abide? Who can dwell? Verse 2, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. So again, if you want to take a note here and write down in your margin, look up also Isaiah 33, 15 would be a good verse to compare to this one here. But here again, we see the character of the believer, okay? The one who walks uprightly, the one who works righteousness, the one who speaks truth in his heart. I really like what Pastor David Guzik says here. He says, in one sense, David speaks from an Old Testament perspective. Though the Old Covenant gave an important place to sacrifice, and atonement through blood, it also based blessing and cursing on obedience. You can see Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 for that. He goes on to say the disobedient could not expect blessing, including the blessing of God's presence. Okay, and that's the Old Testament believer. However, he says the new covenant gives us a different ground for blessing and relationship with God. It's the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Under the new covenant, faith, not performance, is the basis for blessing. Nevertheless, David's principle is also accurate under the new covenant in this one sense. The conduct of one's life is a reflection of their fellowship with God. That's very true. We might say that under the old covenant, a righteous walk was the precondition for fellowship with God, but under the new covenant, a righteous walk 
is the result of a fellowship with God that's been founded on faith. Again, I would say amen. In other words, this is the description of holy living. This is the result of someone who has encountered Christ and has been born again and, are, and is now walking in the power that Christ for, provides and the strength that he provides because he has accomplished all of those things that we could never accomplish on our own. You'll remember Psalm 1 way back when we were studying that. Verses 1 and 2 talked about the blessed man. And that's the one who walks uprightly, the blessed man. Remember Psalm 1, we talked about being a description of Jesus, right? Well, the blessed man, it says, uh, he walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the of scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So, one who is walking uprightly, one who is working in righteousness, if you will, is avoiding ungodly counsel in favor of delighting and meditating on the law of God. And of course, that's his word. The law of God is the word of God. So the one who meditates in his law, guess what? That's going to be the one who begins to walk upright according to God's will. That's going to be the one who works righteousness. You've heard the old saying, garbage in, garbage out, right? So you take garbage in, guess what's coming out? Garbage, right? Well, the opposite of that is is also true. It's necessarily true. Okay? God's word in, God's word out. That's how that works, right? Garbage in, garbage out. You start putting more of God's word into your life, into your heart, into your mind, then guess what's going to start coming out in your life? The way you speak, the way you talk, the way you interact with people, the way you treat your spouse, all of those things like that. God's word in, God's word out. A mind that is fixed on Christ, guys, will exactly and absolutely result in a life that is lived for Christ. That's how that works. The things that we think about most definitely affect how we walk. Okay? If your mind is in the gutter, you're going to be walking in the gutter before long. If we allow our brain to think on those things, then it, it's definitely going to affect the way that we act. So garbage in, garbage out, or God's word in, God's word out. The one who walks uprightly here according to verse 2, the one who works righteousness, then guess what? They have already been delighting and meditating in God's Word. Because this is the result of that. This is the result of someone who has been with God, who has spent time in His Word. Okay, So the walk and the work is a natural outflow of taking in the Word of God. Uh, the more Word we take in, the more we're going to walk in accordance with it. So the result of being in God's word is actually living out God's will for your life. And not only that, David insists that holy living is also a matter of the heart. Did you see that? He says the one who walks right and the one who works right also speaks the truth in his heart. And so again, truth in, truth out. <laughs> the same thing here, right? Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what David says here is, uh, I think also, oh, he's talking to our motive, I think. You know, th this is not only just words. This is the attitude of our heart. This is the motive of our heart, what motivates us. Uh, we see the result of that here. Holy living is a matter of the heart, most definitely. And that includes our motives, our attitudes, our intentions. Uh, and we just know that to be true. Jesus, in the greatest sermon ever preached in, in Matthew, 
uh, 5 and 6, the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks directly to the heart all throughout that sermon. So David is speaking to that here too. And I think we could say this, are we honest? Are we an honest person? Do people say that about us? Can someone take our word um, and believe it? I mean, are we honest? Would our family say that, that we're honest? Are we genuine? When we say things, are we genuine about that? Or are we just saying it to get a reaction? Are we saying something in order to uh, affect someone else? Or are we just being genuine? Are we really the person that we say we are? Are we pure? So in other words, are we truthful within our heart? And if so, then that will result in, guess what? Honesty, being genuine. It will result, result in us being truthful with one another. Um, Zechariah chapter 8, I like verses 16 and 17, which says, These are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor and do not love a false oath for all of these are things that I hate says the Lord man can you imagine so again he's speaking to the heart of the matter he's speaking to our motives to our attitudes to our intentions things like that I mean don't just speak evil of somebody let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor this speaks to the core of who we really are when nobody's looking Okay, this is the stuff that only you and God know, right? So in your heart, who are you? For all of these things, the, the things like thinking about somebody in a way that you shouldn't think about them, even though you didn't say anything, Zechariah says, for all these things I hate, says the Lord. Wow. So God hates, he hates it whenever I think evil things toward my brother or toward my neighbor even in my heart, when it runs through my mind. No, get it out. Repent of that thing quickly. Don't dwell there. Paul quoted a portion of this verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. He says this. He says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. He's quoting from Zechariah here. For we are members of one another. So what do we learn here from this? Well, I think obviously we learn that holy living is about truth. Holy living is about being true. Okay, we should be truthful people inside and out. We don't need to put on airs. We don't need to put on the mask. We need to actually be who we say we are. We need to be genuine. That's holy living from the heart, if you will, inside and out. Well, David continues his description here of the qualities of a real and a true believer in verse 3. And he does so in the negative. You'll notice that right away in verse 3. In other words, we're going to see what we are to do in verses 2 and 4. These are the things that... People who are holy, who want to be in the presence of God, need to do, verses 2 and 4. We're going to see what we're not to do, okay, in verses 3 and 5. So verse 3, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against a friend. And I will give you some cross-reference verses here to uh, write down in your margin. I would recommend Psalm 34, 13. And Leviticus 19, verse 16. But David goes from talking about a matter of the heart to actually, now he talks about the things that we shouldn't say. He says, do not backbite with your tongue, right? 
So now to backbite, it just simply means to slander. That's just another way to say slandering someone, right? But I love this. I picked this up from Pastor Brian Borgman. He's the senior pastor at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. He says this. He says the phrase, he who does not backbite with his tongue, literally reads in the Hebrew, he who does not wander about on his tongue. How about that? He who does not wander about on his tongue. That's what that literally means when you read that in the original language. I mean, how, how many of us could say that we've had days like that? <laughs> I mean, man, I just spent the whole day wandering around on my tongue, sticking my foot in my mouth. You know, things like that. That's the idea here. So the person who wants to be in the presence of God, who wants to abide with Him, dwell with Him, we don't walk around all day on our tongue. We don't consistently insert our foot into our mouth, right? We watch our words. We don't slander, in other words, okay? Think about that. Think about that word backbite in terms of slandering. If you really think about that, what kind of coward do you have to be to bite someone in the back? To take that word literally, backbite, that's a word picture. It means slander, but that means you have to bite someone in the back. That's very cowardly, isn't it? I mean, David says, Those who abide and dwell with God do not backbite with their tongue. And so in order to, to bite someone in the back, you've got to do a few things. You've got to wait until they turn away from you. They gotta turn their face from you and turn their back to you. They can no longer be facing you. They can't be able to see you, right? They've turned away. They can't defend themselves if you're biting them in the back, right? And then once all of that's happened, once they're defenseless, they're not facing you, they can't help themselves, they're turned away, then boom, like a dog, you bite them in the back. That's what slander looks like. That's a great word picture for slander. When somebody is helpless to defend themselves, you bite them. Man, that's terrible. What kind of person would purposely harm a defenseless person? I mean, we can all sit around and go, man, that's terrible. What kind of person would do that? Well, David says a backbiter would do that. Somebody who slanders would do, would do that. They would harm a defenseless person with their words. Here's one of the ways that I like to say this. I think that slander is cowardice on display. If you want to prove to the world that you're a coward, then slander somebody, right? I mean, it's immaturity, it's insecurity, and it's ultimately selfishness on display whenever we use words to hurt somebody who is defenseless. I like what James Montgomery Boyce says here. He says, I think more damage has been done to the church and its work by gossip, criticism, and slander than by any other single sin. Think about that. So he goes on to say, so I say, don't do it, right? Don't slander. Bite your tongue before you criticize another Christian. And I would agree with that. And that's, this is a discipline. This is something that we learn as we grow up in Christ. This is something that we should all pray that God would give us the grace and the strength to do, to bite our tongue before it lashes out and hurts someone else. Especially when they're defenseless, helpless, they have their back turned to us, they're not facing us, they can't defend themselves. Uh, before we strike out with their tongue, with our tongue, 
we need to pray to God that he would help us bite that thing before it gets loose uh, because we can do so much damage with our tongue and we'll read some some scriptures here in, in, in a little bit maybe to help validate what I'm saying here but we got to be careful with this Christian part of holy living part of living for Jesus is not letting our tongue get out of control not setting our brothers and sisters our neighbors up for failure by how we talk about them when they're not around uh, we've got to be careful about that this would include your spouse okay especially think about that uh, too many times at the water cooler you hear the guys just belittling their wife or too many times you hear this the wives just belittling their husband and the sarcasm and the all of this stuff no that's poisonous venom coming straight out of their tongue it's not from heaven it's from the enemy and it tears down it doesn't build up and it's slanderous it hurts and your your spouse is not there to defend themselves so let me give you a nickel's worth of free advice when you're in public I don't care what it takes build up your spouse don't say anything bad about them you guys work that out at home right but build up your spouse build up your brothers and your sisters in Christ build up your church in front of others we're a witness to the world and so if we're over in a corner somewhere talking bad about our church how's that gonna play in the world no let's be people who build up the faith build one another up in the faith and we can work out the stuff we have with one another by taking Matthew 18 to heart right if I've got a problem with Larry what do I need to do I don't need to talk to Chris about it or Desmond about it I need to talk to Larry about it what I need to do on Larry's behalf if I'm with Desmond is build Larry up right same thing and so we need to be careful with that and guard our tongue bite that thing before it gets out of control and does more damage does irreparable harm to someone that's holy living that's taking one for the team so to speak if i can put it like that but we'll go ahead and pray and we'll have a time of uh, discussion father thank you so much for this time in your word today we love you and we praise you we thank you for what you have done through jesus christ our lord to accomplish righteousness for us to make it possible for us to walk upright to do works of righteousness because we have the power of christ thank you for that lord help us lord through the power of christ to watch our tongue uh, if we want to live holy if we want to be in your presence uh, then we need to not slander we need to be people who do not bite one another in the back so help us to build one another up in the faith to effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And uh, we need to do that, Lord, uh, so that a world that is far from you uh, can be attracted to you and it can give us an opportunity to witness and share the love of Jesus Christ with them. And we can do that if we build one another up. So help us to do that, Lord, and uh, please bless our discussion now in Jesus' name. Amen.